Chapter 21 Psychological Blindness Adolf awoke. He was still blind. He felt the gauze bandages over his broken eyes. There was no pain. They just did not work. It was very odd, but he was glad that at least it did not hurt. He could not say how it had happened, and he was certain there would be murmuring about cowardice, and it being some sort of psychological affliction. But all he knew was that he simply could not see. Maybe it was some new poison gas. He recalled moving forward with the infantry, toward the Canadians. He remembered seeing the men on each side of him advancing. Then it all went black. There had been the usual nerves before the Major ordered them over the top. Nothing different about this time than the other fifteen times he had been part of an assault. But before they followed the barrage toward the Canadian trenches, something odd had happened to Adolf. Young Klaus Stoller had been beside him at the sandbags. While the sergeants prowled up and down behind them like sharks, Adolf's breath shortened. He began to feel as if a crushing weight was pressing down on him. He grabbed at his chest. Was he having a heart attack? A cold sweat broke out on his whole body. He felt it saturate his undershirt and underpants. He grasped at his collar and found his dog tag hanging there by its leather cord. He snatched the locket off and stared at it. He realized that Klaus was watching him, a look of concern growing on his face. Adolf, get us der gut. Adolf, are you all right? Adolf shrugged, uncertain. Yes, fine. I don't think I'm going to make it. What? Don't be an idiot, Klaus whispered. They'll shoot you for sure. Adolf knew that Klaus was right, but he was fairly sure that he was right too. Take my identity tag. Klaus just stared at him, not understanding. It filled Adolf with rage. He wanted to turn his bayonet on Klaus. Take my identity tag. He thrust it toward Klaus. Give it to my mother if I die. Tell her I was a good soldier. Tell her I was brave. Klaus was not sure that he wanted to lie to anyone's mother. He knew as well as Adolf did that Adolf was not a good soldier nor a brave man. He was barely likable. Klaus rolled his eyes and accepted the tag. Better to shut Adolf up than to let the upset turn into a full-fledged fit. Klaus tucked it into his breast pocket. Yes, sure, of course. Then the whistles blew, and they clambered up out of the trenches, following the barrage toward the goddamn Canadians. Adolf's breath was coming in sharp gasps. He saw the bright muzzle flashes of the Canadian rifles, then above them a star shell exploded, bathing them in light. Adolf stopped and stared up at it. He glanced back down and saw Klaus running on ahead. Adolf could not help himself. He dropped to his knees. Someone grabbed him by his field jacket. Get up! Are you shot? Get up, you fucking coward! He recognized the voice of the first sergeant, but he could not see him. Adolf had suddenly and utterly gone blind. Sergeant, help me. I've been blinded. I can't see. The sergeant released him with disgust. He had always known that Corporal Hitler was a coward and a malingerer at heart. 
No one shouted from the rooftops more about their patriotism and pride than a useless piece of shit did. For a moment he considered shooting Adolf. He had every legal right to do so, but in that instant he chose not to. He would report the little tit and let the court-martial tie him to a tree and shoot him. He did not need any unnecessary dead men on his conscience. Leave it to the random chance of a firing squad. Coward, he growled. Then he pressed on toward the Canadian trenches, leaving Adolf alone with his yellow belly. Adolf had lain down then and drifted off to sleep. He was certain that once the battle was over, the stretcher bearers would find him and take him back. The first sergeant was welcome to his own opinions, but all Adolf knew was that this miraculous blindness had just saved his life. Adolf woke sometime the next day during the heat of the afternoon. He drank a little water from his canteen. There was no sound beyond the whisper of the unseasonably hot breeze. He unbuttoned his collar and remembered that he had given Klaus his identity tag. He would have to find him after he got out of hospital and get it back. The first sergeant would not be happy that he had let it go missing. He lay back down and slept again. When he awoke the second time, he felt the cool dampness of night coming on. He sensed a presence, but he was still entirely blind. Hello? There was a momentary silence. Then a hand patted him on the shoulder. Hello, Adolf. The voice belonged to young, blue-eyed Klaus Stola, but it sounded different somehow, more mature. Adolf could not quite put a description to it. I'm so glad you survived, Klaus. Do you still have my identity tag? Alas, no, brother Adolf. I've given it to another. Adolf's face creased with consternation. Don't fear, Klaus said. We will find him and take it back. How does that sound? Adolf was frustrated. That did not sound as good as Klaus simply handing him back his identity tag. But it was acceptable. Come, said Klaus. He felt Klaus take his elbow and help him to standing. Where are we going? On an incredible adventure. Come and see. Adolf wanted to say, I can't see, you fool. I'm blind. But he held his tongue. Klaus was being very nice. Nicer than he had ever been prior to last night. So Adolf held his new friend's hand and blindly followed his gentle lead into the night. And now, in Tormos Town Square, in the heat of the afternoon, seated by the fountain, Adolf was still blind and all on his lonesome again. He was terrified. He said a devout prayer that Klaus would return soon. Whether anyone was listening or not, that prayer would shortly come true. Renoir led the way along a small-gauge railway line. The burst of energy they had exhibited as they left the depot had exhausted itself, and they were all now suffering under the load of rations, arms, and ammunition. The pace had slowed to an unsteady slog. They arrived at the base of a little hillock and found themselves looking up at a British railway gun on the tracks. It was surrounded by a large pile of spent 12-inch shell casings. Neat stacks of fresh shells were in the small train car behind it. High explosive, shrapnel, star shells. On the hill overlooking the gun were dead men and women. 
They had been impaled on timber, then hoisted up in a perfect half-circle around the gun emplacement. Some were German, perhaps a third of the remainder were civilians and poilus, the rest were British artillerymen. The battery's detachment. Renoir surveyed the horror. Sweet Christ, how much further is it? asked Durant. Not far. We must cross no man's land, then not more than two kilometer. Durant looked toward where the sun was dipping behind clouds. The horizon and night were much closer than he would have liked. You sure we can shelter there? asked Durant. As sure as one can be. Then let's hurry up and get there. The column moved past the impaled dead bodies quickly, a last surge of energy pricking them onward, jolted by the sight of the scattered dead, longing to leave them behind and not yet join them in their silent, still slumber. No man's land was a kilometre of trenches, mud and shell craters. They passed a handful more dead bodies but saw no sign of anyone living in the British trenches. When they arrived at the German lines, they found a true horror. The smell engulfed them first. The front line of zigzagging trenches was filled with enough blood to completely cover the wooden duckboards that served as a walkway. They stepped through the grotesquerie of the ankle-dip ichor and into the east-west fire bay that led from the front to the rear lines. It was there that they found the font from which the stream of blood had flowed. They were stacked in as perfect symmetry as imaginable like rows of pale white cordwood ready to be put to the fire. They filled in the trench, eight feet deep, from bottom to top, for one hundred meters. It seemed as though they had been packed into this gash on the earth's surface to fill it to its pre-war brim, returning the land to its natural elevation and order. They had been stripped naked and exsanguinated. A quick inspection by Francois revealed that the topmost victims' throats had all been carefully slit. The same could be assumed of those that underpinned them. There could not have been an ounce of liquid left in any of the corpses, yet most of the bodies showed no sign of struggle, as if they had submitted to the final cut without hesitation. Durant's column came out of the trenches and made their way past the bizarre flesh construction. They found a possible answer to why these dead had bowed before their killers. They lay just behind the German reserve trench. Men, perhaps 100 strong, armed in uniforms of all the nations who had been on hand for this great war. They were still, no hint of breath or life, but like Harry Moss's corpse, and just as the dead bodies of the Highlander and his companions in the meadow, their attitudes were those of frozen deep slumber, and not the penultimate sloppy sleep of death. The pall that hung over the little company was summed up as James vomited his guts into the mud. Isaiah grabbed him by the arm and pulled him to standing. No time for that, bumpkin. Get your ass moving before you wake these motherfuckers up, losing your okra all over the place. The sun was headed for departure. They picked through the camp of the dead, quick and quiet, as if fearing that Isaiah was right, that any untoward action might truly wake the dead. When they had left the dead men behind, Renoir broke into a run, racing against the setting sun to reach his shelter. When Adolf awoke again by the Tomar fountain, still blind, he called out, Hello? There was no answer. He knew it must be evening because he felt the low sun on his face. He reached out 
and his hand touched something cold and still that made him recoil. He had touched death enough times since the war's advent to know the stiffness and heavy emptiness of a corpse when he made contact with one. Adolf cringed and leaned back as far away from it as he could get. Hello? Still no answer. Klaus must have gone somewhere. Perhaps for food. Adolf was beginning to get hungry. Hopefully, Klaus would return soon with food and not leave his newly dear friend Adolf sitting alone near dead bodies next time. They would give Klaus a stern talking to when he returned. Adolf began to fantasize about Klaus arriving with soup and bread and butter, schnitzel and a nice mustard sauce. It made his mouth water and his belly rumble. When he felt the last warmth of the sun's light fade, he began to lose heart. Perhaps Klaus was not going to return. When it had completely set, he felt a coldness run through his whole body. Then he heard a sudden stirring all around. It made him think of a nest full of cockroaches, awakening and stretching their legs. It shot him through with fresh terror. But then a familiar voice came through it all, calming him. Hallo, Adolf. Klaus had returned. Adolf tried to ignore that the voice came from right where he had touched the corpse. He succeeded. Klaus helped him to his feet. Then Adolf let his dear, dear friend lead him onward into the night. As the last rays of golden and strawberry sunlight touched her stones, the Chateau de Bois was glorious and lovely to behold. The manor stood proudly on an estate that, at first glance, seemed untouched by war. The grounds were now unkempt, but the gardens were still flowering, and the structure itself remained an exquisite example of 14th-century High Renaissance architecture. It married all the tenets of the Vitruvian triumvirate. For Martis, she had weathered the test of time beautifully. The foundation and the bones were strong and showed no sign of decay. If anything, the aging process seemed to have matured and strengthened the chateau, making it even more impressive. Utilitas. It could not be said that she had not provided a utilitarian function in every incarnation throughout her existence. She had served the original owners, the Landau family, exceedingly well, hosting French and foreign nobility in the Salon for centuries, including, according to some reports, the bon vivant American Benjamin Franklin on at least one debaucherous, licentious occasion. In the early hours of the war, the French had commandeered her, Overwhelmed by the German advance, they surrendered the chateau bloodlessly only days later. German high command had enjoyed occupying it for a time. Kaiser Wilhelm himself had ridden to the front in his gleaming Mercedes 3795 and pillaged its wine cellars before determining that the chateau was too close to the front lines to provide the sense of serenity that was needed to successfully conduct his grand campaign. So with small regret, he and the German general staff had passed it on to the German medical corps, whose ranking doctors happily took it as their own. With the red cross flying on its flagpole and a matching cross painted boldly on the roof, they avoided becoming victims of aerial assault or targets for the British artillerymen, which helped them sleep soundly each night, the latest foreign dignitaries to call it a temporary home. 
and last of the Vitruvian triad, Venestatus. Yes, the Chateau de Bois had the beauty of Venus. The stone facade was immaculate. The detail in the bas-relief frieze of Daedalus, valiantly, tragically bearing his fallen son Icarus above the portico, was perfection. And the crisp lines, the surrounding cornices and balusters, the bold Corinthian columns that framed the front-entry portico, holding Daedalus and Icarus aloft when their wings could not, were lovely to the eye and to the spirit. Yes, the Chateau de Bois was a thing to behold, a glory of its age, and a point of pride and conversation for everyone in the surrounding hamlets and towns. What few made mention of was that she had been erected stone by stone, baluster by baluster, arch by arch, lovely Corinthian column by lovely Corinthian column by a small army of African slaves. The fact that it remained standing strong was an extraordinary testament to the sweat, blood and terror inflicted upon them so that the chateau could reach her state of abject perfection. Renoir's destination lay beyond the Chateau de Bois' walled gardens and fountains, two hundred yards past the chateau itself. It was as invisible to the eye as the slaves' suffering were to breathless beholders of the chateau's exquisite facade. As Durand's company raced along the pathways through the untended gardens, the sun's light turned the entire sky, shades of coral, orange and bright red. The fire at Amiens had sent its dead ashes heavenward, and the way the ashes caught the light made the sunset a stunning work of art. They reached the door in the tall stone wall at the back of the gardens. Renoir turned the knob, trying to shoulder his way through, but found it blocked by the unshorn grass on the far side. Francois put his back into it, and together they succeeded in pushing it open wide enough to squeeze through. Renoir, ushered the exhausted group through the door. Dépêchez-vous. Hurry, we are nearly there. Isaiah brought up the rear, and together he and Durant drove the door shut behind them. They found themselves in an orchard. Immaculate ranks of apple, peach, and pear trees ranged into the distance as far as the eye could see. An abandoned pushcart, holding a cache of long, fruit-picking implements, was leaning against the wall. Renoir grabbed the handles, and with Durant and Isaiah's help, he dragged it in front of the door, wedging it shut. Then they ran. The sun broke the plain of the western horizon, and the last light bounced off the clouds and stood of Amiens, giving it all an unearthly afterglow. But Durant's company could not think on that. Terror stabbed at their innards, as fear of what the coming darkness might unleash seized hold of them. They stumbled and ran the final fifty yards in Renoir's footsteps, from the stately orchards into the surrounding forest that lords, knights and noblemen had hunted upon and peasants and serfs had risked life and limb to poach game from for century upon century. The well's cover was just below ground level, invisible for all intents unless you were clear on top of it. Renoir led them right to it. He knelt and grabbed for the lock. He pulled his trench knife and pried the latch free. He folded open the well's cover, revealing a deep stone chasm yawning black below them. There were stone rungs cut into the wall. Renoir sheathed his knife and took out his flashlight, shining it down into the dark. Then he swung his legs over the edge and began his descent. Caitlin followed him. As she lowered herself in, they all heard it. At the door through the garden wall, a solid BAM! as something struck the blocked door. Renoir's flashlight was casting its glow upward, 
It illuminated the mouth of the well like a lighthouse beacon on a clear evening. Durant whispered harshly, Turn off the light! From the depths, Renoir flipped the switch and everything went black. Caitlin paused on the rungs. She could not see her hand in front of her face. From above, she heard Durant's urgent whisper, Keep going! She could see Dr. Halstead's form coming over the mouth of the well above her. She knew his feet would find her hands and send her plummeting if she did not continue. Caitlin reached her boot-shod feet into the abyss, one rung at a time, descending as fast as she could. The bottom was perhaps thirty feet down, but in the pitch black it felt like a mile. She was shocked when Renoir's hands caught her by the waist and helped her to the floor of the well. Renoir cupped the flashlight with his hand and shined it into a low passageway that was carved out of the same limestone that had been quarried for the chateau's flagstones. It travelled upward at a slight angle for perhaps seventy-five feet. Come. He began to lead her up the passage as Dr. Holstead reached the bottom. Above him on the ladder was James, followed by Unger. Just preparing to enter the well was Strothman. Then from above them, they all heard the cover slam shut. A full fifteen seconds passed in the pitch black before they heard Isaiah's Lewis gun roaring in the distance.